The theme of the talk this evening is thinning the self. Now we were talking over supper tonight about what happens on retreat for the teachers, whether we lose weight or not. (laughs) And it's different for different teachers. But this is not what I will be talking about. (laughs) It's really uh, to use metaphors of uh, thin and thick as a practical way to look at the theme of anatta or not-self, which we know from the last weeks is one of the three core areas of insight and a really uh, fundamental part of our practice to examine uh, the nature of what we take to be a self, to open beyond uh, some of the conditioned forms of self. And yet this is a very uh, confusing area. It's particularly confusing if we try to approach it conceptually, which many of us like to do at times. And I'm generally not going to do that. I'm going to try to give a more practically based approach to looking at this theme of anatta or not-self and talk about it, uh, especially in the context of retreat practice, but also point in some ways to our daily practice and to through the totality of, a, of our sense of practice. So just a little bit about the different kinds of confusions, just to remind you of the potential for, for challenges uh, in looking at this topic. Um, there is a great lore of what could be called Jewish Buddhist humor, which brings out this question um, very clearly. So for example, the Torah says, love your neighbor as yourself. The Buddha says, there is no self. (laughs) So maybe we're off the hook. (laughs) And it's challenging, you know, in different spiritual traditions. uh, They're very different messages. And sometimes the experiences that they're referring to seem very similar. So in some traditions, there's talk about the true self or the true person. Or in some some traditions, the aim of practice is to realize the self with a capital S. In some psychological traditions, that's also the um, aspiration. And maybe even uh, more challenging, even in Buddhist traditions, there, there are a lot of terms which sure sound like there's a self, even Uh, In the suttas, we have uh, sometimes talk about arhats, or people who are at the pinnacle of spiritual development, and sometimes they're called maha-atas, which means great self. Isn't that interesting? It's the same term that was used for Gandhi, mahatma, you know, and and, you know, sometimes there's another term uh, for a great practitioner is, is bhavit ato, which means a developed self, as if that is beyond the usual sense of self. And that's right there in the, in the text. Sometimes the stream-enterer is called a big person, <laughs> you know? And you have this throughout the text. And, of course, you get to Mahayana and it's, a lot breaks loose. You know, you have Buddha nature and uh, all sorts of other ways that there seems to be something like a self. That's why I'm not going to try to deal with this primarily conceptually. Okay. And, you know, then we get into meta practice and, you know, we seem to be wishing something for a bunch of selves and, you know, not to mention the question that we always get in the teaching role, like, if there's no self, who gets reborn and so forth. So, Um, So there are confusions there, and there are also plenty of confusions just in using the term self in uh, 
in English where sometimes the term ego is used and very, very confusing. You know, sometimes uh, in Western psychology, ego is something positive. Sometimes it's something negative. Sometimes the self is neutral. You know, it's just, you know, an aspect of uh, sort of a, a way that we organize experience in a certain way. And so it's, um, again, maybe, maybe that's enough. It's, it's, it's confusing. And, and then we also can uh, uh, add the sense that for, for some people, there may be a way in which we use the teaching of not-self as a way to practice what we've been calling spiritual bypassing. You know, sometimes the sense of not-self sounds very much like uh, my experience if I haven't um, um, really been permitted to express myself. My, in a sense, my being has been squashed by conditions. And I might think, oh, I know not-self. And I might be attracted to Buddhist practice, but in a sense, there's something uh, that's not done. There's some bypassing, you know. Um, you know, in, in, in situations where I'm um, really almost prohibited from being a full person, you know, whether because of family or social dynamics. And interestingly, even, you know, again, in the teachings of the Buddha, there seems at times to have been a more nuanced understanding of this teaching of self and not-self. You know, there's a, there's a well-known passage in which the Buddha was addressing, or actually he was meeting, with a wandering yogi named Vachagata. And there are a series of dialogues. And uh, in this dialogue, uh, the, Vachagata, the wanderer Vachagata approached the Blessed One and said to him, how is it now, Master Gotama? Is there a self? When this was said, the Blessed One was silent. Then, Master Gotama, is there no self? A second time, the Blessed One was silent. And then the wanderer Vachagata left. <laughs> and not long after he had left, Ananda said, you know, basically, why did you stay silent? You know, he might have said, you know, why didn't you teach him about anatta? Uh, but he stayed silent. And there, maybe there was a more nuanced sense, almost like of a middle way between self and not-self, perhaps. You know, at the end of this dialogue, he said, if Ananda, when I was asked by Vachagota, is there a self, I had answered, there is a self, would this have been consistent on my part with the arising of the knowledge that all phenomena are anatta or not-self? No, it would not. And if when I was asked by him, is there no self, I had answered, there is no self, the wanderer of Achigata, already confused, would have fallen into greater confusion, thinking, it seems now that the self I formerly had does not exist. You know, I take this to be part of the humorous... Um, part of the, of, the, of the suttas. But, there, but you can sense there's something that you know, we read this and what do we make of it? You know, or uh, achan cha, you know, and again, achan just means teacher. We've been using the word achan cha, achan mahabua, and so forth. It means teacher. Achan cha said the teachings about not-self are not true. The teachings about self are not true either. Okay, so... <laughs> so what I want to do is actually leave some of that, um, noting the confusion that's possible, leave some of that behind and try to address this whole question practically. Like, how do we actually address the investigation of the sense of self, not self, in our practice? And I'm going to be using this uh, metaphor of the self being thin or the self being thick. And it's a metaphor that I first heard from, from uh, people I've studied with, uh, Tina Rasmussen and Stephen Snyder, some of you may know, who especially teach quite a bit on concentration practice. 
And I want to uh, talk first about a way that we can access something like uh, anatta or not-self in a very ordinary way in our practice and actually in daily life, um, in which there's either a thin self or not much self at all. And then I want to uh, look at a second way of approaching this. One way is that we can actually access a sense of the flow of experience without a thick sense of self. The second area I want to talk about is how a big part of our practice is noticing when the self is thick. That's a big part. And I'll talk about a few different ways that we can notice the self is thick. And then thirdly, I want to go into some further meditative ways of thinning the self. How do we, how do we work with this further thinning of the self? And lastly, I want to come back to um, a friend of us all, what we could call the meditative self. Do you know that we've been setting up a meditative self for these weeks? Many of you know, because it sometimes complains or wonders whether there's progress or, you know, um, wonders whether one's doing it right. So I'm going to come back and talk a little bit about the meditative self and how we thin out the meditative self. Okay. Okay, so, ready? Okay, so um, for me, one of the most uh, kind of commonsensical ways of approaching this whole question of not-self without going into the concepts is through something like seeing where we have a sense of the flow of experience without much self-image, without much self-consciousness, without much control. And this is actually an experience which we have, I'm sure, very, very often here at the retreat. And it's also something that we experience quite often outside of the retreat. Um, Some of you know there's a a Hungarian psychologist named uh, Mihaly uh, Csikszentmihalyi who developed the concept of flow. And he defined it as... uh, a person is performing an activity fully immersed in a feeling of energized focus, full involvement and enjoyment in the process of the activity. In essence, flow is characterized by complete absorption in what one does. So presumably without much sense of self. And it's interesting just to see the kind of experiences in which we can find that sense of flow or that sense of immersion. A lot of our time on retreat, we may have that sense of absorption just in the walking, just in being with a tree, just in watching the king snake or being with the deer, right? There can be an absorption where it's almost like a timeless moment. There's not much sense of self. And the sense of flow can also be seen in a lot of activities. I, I looked into this theme with the a Wednesday morning group that uh, we have down, down the hill uh, that uh, I teach and Sylvia teach. We share the teaching of that class. And we looked for several weeks into this sense of flow and people reported all sorts of experiences. It might be playing music and art, being with people very close to them where there was like no sense of self-consciousness, no sense of self hardly in a sense or no, no experience sense. And that can happen, you know, it can happen in the artistic process. Uh, it can happen in music, where um, you can think of jazz. If people are very much in the flow and if there's a sense of self-consciousness, like, wow, that was a really good uh, lick, right? They're out of it at that moment. This is from uh, John Coltrane. All a musician can do is to get closer to the sources of nature and so feel that one is in communion with natural laws. I've also been very interested how that sense of flow is there in sports. And um, I have a a friend named Andrew Cooper who wrote a, a book called Playing in the Zone which is very much about how the sense of flow is there in sports. And 
listen to some of, some of this because, and, and see how it's sometimes close to the sense of not-self that we might experience in, uh, in meditation. So I was thinking of a few examples, both from uh, basketball. One of them was, I don't, know, I don't know who here likes professional basketball, but about 20 years ago there was an NBA Finals and Michael Jordan was playing and it was against, I think, Portland. It was in the finals. Anyone remember? Okay. okay. <laughs> and, and he hit like uh, seven three-pointers in a row. Right? Just phenomenal. He was in the zone. When the, the basketball players, they say, the basket is as big as a, you know, like a table or something. And he was in the zone. And then he walked by the scorer's table and he held up his hands like this. And he looked at them as if it's not me. But at that point, there was self-consciousness, right? He missed his next shot. <laughs> Interesting, right? Or this is from Bill Russell, who, who played for the Boston uh, Celtics. Every so often, a Celtics game would heat up so that it became more than a physical or even mental game and would be magical. The feeling is difficult to describe, and I certainly never talked about it when I played. When it happened, I could feel my play rise to a new level. At that special level, all sorts of odd things happened. It was almost as if we were playing in slow motion. During these spells, I could almost sense how the next play would develop and where the next shot would be taken. Even before the other team brought the ball in, bounds, I could feel it so keenly that I'd want to shout to my teammates, it's coming there, except I knew that everything would change if I did. And he later talked about the qualities, which he said were fairly rare when he was in this sense of flow or what they call being in the zone. He said the qualities included uh, profound joy, acute intuition, which sometimes feels like precognition, a feeling of effortlessness in the midst of intense exertion. We can experience that in meditation as well. A sense of the action taking place in slow motion, feelings of awe, and perfection, increased mastery, and self-transcendence, and no sense of self. Not a sense of of self. No self-consciousness, often a sense of profound interconnection. You know, when people were reporting this, often a sense of love, and that sense of flow. And for me, this is a a way to um, start to access it. I think the metaphor of flow for me is very helpful, partly to access in daily life. It just means, can I be with the flow of my yogi job? Can I be with the flow of sensations? And just see, where am I adding a sense of self? Can I be with sensations and thoughts and emotions and back to thoughts and so forth? Can I be with that? So in our practice, we can try to sense, when am I with a sense of flow? And this can give give a sense of that experience of not-self. And that sense of flow uh, can happen with all sorts of things happening. It's not dependent on just, uh, just everything being quiet, as you could know from looking at the basketball game. You know, I remember after one retreat that I did at IMS, I, um, I worked in the kitchen for five days, and my mind was pretty quiet, and um, I remember one day we were serving tacos and just a lot to do. And I was rushing all around and yet there was a profound sense of stillness even with the rush, right? And we, we know this, right? And there was a sense of there wasn't almost anything added. And I was like, whoa, I, can, I, can, I don't need meditation to have the, the sense and I can do it, you know, with tacos. And So we can, we can look at this in our practice and we can, we can some, you know, sometimes we can see where is there that sense of flow. Another way is maybe for, sometimes for a short time, try to be just fully with the flow like for three minutes at a time and just really work with that. It's a way of, of training just to stay with every moment really fully and then make, bring it out to a longer time. Maybe bring it out to a whole sitting. And so one way that we explore anatta, I think, is by getting at sense of those, those kinds of flow experiences.
there's also, I think, a very important way that we practice, which is really, in a sense, the opposite. Sometimes we have a sense of the flow where we don't have a sense of self. And the, the other key way we practice, and this is what we do at retreat or at home, is we look for what we might call the thick self. We look for when the self feels thick, when it feels strong, and we study it. We really, a lot of our practice is just looking where the self manifests and studying it you know, with compassion and with understanding. Some of you know this line from Dogen, the Japanese uh, Zen teacher, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. And so we use here at the retreat, we use the tools, we use a multiplicity of tools, we use mindfulness. We notice when self-image arises. We notice maybe when self-consciousness arises, when there's uh, sort of obsessive self-centered thinking, when there's reactivity organized around a self, I like, I don't like, and so forth. That's sort of uh, the bread and butter, so to speak, of our practice, isn't it? We're just constantly seeing where that self manifests. And then we're watching if that proliferates, if we judge ourselves for, for um, having self-thoughts. Yeah. And we, we, we also uh, really are guided by the wisdom teachings in working with a sense of self. We, we may look at the aggregates or the khandhas, skandhas, and see, oh, let me look at experience in terms of just being with form and vedana and perception and uh, mental formations and consciousness. And let me just use that model to help be with that sense of flow of just those phenomena. Or we might really be guided by the practice of the, of the uh, teaching of the two arrows, you know, and uh, notice, really be on the lookout for any moment of reactivity and look for around that reactivity. Look if we are then being further reactive and um, see what the sense of self is. I'll come back to that. You know, it's really, really looking for uh, that reactivity where we might really work with Vedana, the practice, and notice how pleasant or unpleasant especially can very quickly go to wanting or not wanting, which can often bring in a sense of self. So we can practice, we can practice there. We can look at the whole nature of, of uh, dukkha, suffering and reactivity and how that arises and how there may be a sense of self. One of the first practices I was given, uh, Joseph Goldstein was my first teacher and he gave me a practice, uh, I think first on retreat, but very much a daily life practice as well. He said, if there's suffering, where's the grasping? And I took that and then worked with that for quite a while, quite a number of years. And it was really like an inquiry. If I noticed a moment of suffering, could I have a sense that I was grasping? We can do that here. And we, I'm sure we, we do that many times. Like if there's a moment of, you know, uh, I don't want this and I'm getting constricted, you know, where's the grasping? Oh, it's that I um, believe that reality should not include this, knee, this uh, shoulder pain at this moment. And I have the right to tell reality how to be. I think humor's helpful because we're, it's pretty, you know, as I, I forget who said it. Uh, maybe Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche said a lot of great things. He said, I think he said, the mind has no shame. <laughs> and to look at that. So we use the wisdom teachings like that, or we use uh, metta and uh, compassion to hold all this because a lot of the looking into the thick self can really result in self-judgment or, my God, look at that self. Oh my God, my conditioning of self is just, I'm hopeless. <laughs> Noticing, I'm hopeless. <laughs> and again, uh, Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche had a great line. He said, uh, self-knowledge is 70% bad news.
So we notice that reactivity. We look for the reactivity over and over again. You know, here in daily life, it's really, really at the center of our practice. We look for the nature of grasping. We look for the nature of wanting. We study it. You know, it reminds me, um, um, some years ago, uh, Diana Winston, who is also a spirit rock teacher, who's a, a dear friend, and we uh, taught together for a number of years. She's in Los Angeles now with the uh, UCLA uh, Mindful Awareness Research Center. And we, um, one of our teachings we did together, we offered a class on greed management. We had very, very low enrollment. <laughs> But we didn't really care that. We were really interested in the topic. <laughs> and so we had this greed management class. We had five students and two teachers. <laughs> and we, you know, we really investigated uh, greed at great length. And the, we had a final exam for the class, which was to do silent walking meditation in the newly opened Bed Bath & Beyond in El Cerrito. <laughs> for half an hour. And just study the mind. It was amazing. It was amazing just to, you know, talk about. I was de- I was developing grasping for things that I that previous to going to the store I didn't even know existed. <laughs> but what's lasted with me though is we actually look very carefully at the nature of greed, which is very interesting because it's very connected with a sense of self, and we found that that sense of greed was very self-centered. Often, other people didn't matter in the moment of greed. It had often had no sense of consequences in that moment of greed. It's like, I want this now. Other people don't matter. Consequences don't matter. Um, only meeting my need matters. So we, we study that. We study grasping, greed, reactivity, moments of suffering, pushing things away. We work with, we work with Vedna. We do that here. We do that at home. You know, we can look at the various manifestations of self. We can look here at our Vipassana romances, our Vipassana vendettas, you know. Um, our, we can look at our sense of self uh, as it manifests, as a retreatant, you know. What is my, I'll, I'll come back to this, what's my sense of being like a meditative self? How, you know, uh, how do I build up myself or how do I pull down myself, you know? Um, we can look at this. We can see, you know, when I was um, uh, in my 20s and first practicing, I came from a background of uh, having a sense of self as being a good student. Always a good student. Anyone? I won't, I know I won't won't ask for hands. But many of us have that. You know, I want to be a good student. I want to do well or be approved of. And it comes into the meditation, doesn't it? You can feel that sometimes maybe as you go into meet one-on-one with us. And some of you talk about it. You know, some of us talk about it. I certainly had that. And uh, <clears throat> the trouble with meditation, though, was I wanted to really show people externally that I was a good meditator. How do you do that? <laughs> you know, there, were, there was like... I. You know, and the only thing I could figure out, and it, what, this wasn't really conscious, this was like the, the good student self in operation, right? The only thing I could figure out was that I would um, uh, sit a long time, sit really long. A good meditator must sit for a long time, right? And stay up late. That was about all I could come up with because... Otherwise, it's all internal. And, you know, I I did that even though the person who was at that time a mentor uh, was Larry Rosenberg, some of you may know, who teaches in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And Larry was my mentor. Larry didn't sit for a long time. Larry didn't stay up late. I thought he was very wise. But anyway, I still, you know. And then, you know, and then when, I remember once I got sick and I couldn't do those things, I thought, oh, I'm a wreck, right? So some of this, you know, we can have compassion for this, but we all probably do some version of this. And we look at that, we look at that meditative self, we see how we judge others, we judge ourselves, you know. And I think it's very important as we practice noting the self 
to recognize that as we awaken, we will see manifestations of the self like this. And it's a very uh, easy move to be judgmental of ourselves as we're awakening because we're noticing things. We're noticing things we didn't notice before. And I know this was true for my own practice, that as I would see, as I would see more, I would start judging myself for how I was asleep for so long or how I didn't see something. You know, so you can see why metta and compassion need to hold all of this. Because you know, if, if, if self-knowledge has so much bad news, we need to hold that with, with kindness and compassion. Right? And it can also sometimes be disorienting as we, as we see these aspects of the thick self. You know, and we sometimes disengage from them, then how do we live? Because sometimes the old thick self has oriented us. How do I orient myself if not the old way? You know, and all of us are, are working with some version of that. Now, in our practice, we really examine that sense of the thick self when it manifests in all the ways I was mentioning, reactivity, self-image, and so forth. Now, what makes it trickier is that there are aspects of the self that are hidden or that are unconscious or that are semi-conscious and that don't even necessarily appear in our meditation. Sometimes these start to surface. We can see this a lot, for example, we start to notice, and Heather was mentioning last night, we may notice, oh, I'm getting a sense that beneath the surface, there's a sense I'm not enough, or I'm not okay, or there's something wrong with me. There's sort of negative self-views, and sometimes those start surfacing. We may get a sense of something beneath the surface that's driving us. Maybe, you know, if you had asked me when I was staying up late, are you just meditating to be a good meditator, a good student again? I was not in touch with that, right? There was something that was beneath the surface. And it makes it trickier to really find the thick self. There's a lot that really makes our thick, our self thick that has roots beneath the surface. You know, I think broadly speaking, um, this is really an aspect of ignorance. And there are some of, some of the ways we work with the sense of self is we go into our ignorance, into our delusion. We find ways to open that up. It's a very, it's a very interesting question. How do you, how do you uh, explore your own delusion? How do you explore ignorance? It's like, you know, I feel like I'm channeling Sylvia. If I knew, I would do it. <laughs> yeah. Or if I knew how to go into ignorance, then I wouldn't really be ignorant. Right? And so, how do we do that? And, and, and one way of um, talking about it is that I think there are three broad areas of ignorance which lead us to have a sense of self that's really driven from subterranean roots, driven from below. One of them I would call more personal and psychological. One of these roots of ignorance, set of roots of ignorance. Another one is more social. And then a third, I think, is what's particularly identified in the Buddhist teachings. It's that ignorance of not knowing the three characteristics, of not knowing Nibbana. I want to talk a little bit about all three. And I think we've already already begun to find ways to, to make these connections. So there's a, there's a first area, which again is familiar to, to some of us, that again, there can be these roots of our uh, sense of self that are beneath the surface. And again, some of that comes up. This is sometimes what we call the purification process. It comes up on retreat. It can be explored out of retreat. You know, that we may have a thick sense of self can develop around places where we're wounded, you know, personally. And again, we may not know that there's a thick sense of self there. 
I can have a certain kind of pain and wound that developed when my parents divorced, let's say, when I was eight years old, and I, became, I had a sense of people who love me will abandon me. Right? And then I'm in a relationship, and uh, my partner wants to go away for a weekend, and I'm freaked out. And I don't know why. Right? There's something, there's some wound that's driving that beneath the surface. You know, that ultimately we can bring to the surface and heal. Or there can be trauma, you know, as a number of us uh, know. There can be trauma that, in a sense, creates a thick sense of self. And that we need often to do some focused work to investigate the trauma and learn how to release it. Often, typically, it's stored in the body. And yet this can be driving a sense of self. And we don't, often we don't know where it's coming from. Right? And so one of the blessings of our time is that we have these different modalities, which to me really complement very beautifully the meditative practices. And they're increasingly being integrated with them. You know, f- for myself, one of the areas that I've explored and taught a lot is on the theme of the judgmental mind. The, the way that we become judgmental, uh, really reactive towards um, oneself or another, distinguished from discernment. So I can be, I can notice I'm, um, you know, I'm, uh, I don't know, I slept in this morning, didn't come to the 5.30 sit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I judge myself, you know, and I notice that, and I judge, me, I judge myself for that. You know, I'm bad, or there's, typically there's evaluation, there's a charge there, you know. And, and yet I can also sometimes just notice things with discernment, and it's not necessarily judgmental. You know, I can, I can notice, I can notice, oh, that person in the dining hall is taking seconds again, right? Not that anyone tracks a year old. Everyone's heads is down. <laughs> and, and I can notice that simply as discernment or I can actually be judgmental about it. Right? So, so we, know, we know judgment. We know that judgmental mind. And w- what's possible sometimes is to follow the trail of the judgments, first with mindfulness. And then at times it's possible using metta, a lot of compassion, and following the trail of the judgmental mind to use certain kinds of practices which start taking us beneath the surface and may open up more to that sense of there being some kind of core belief, like like Heather was mentioning last night, that's in a sense unconscious and driving us. I may have a core belief that I'm not okay as I am, or that I'm flawed, or that uh, if I'm really myself, people won't love me. You know, these are these are more the the negative core beliefs, or that uh, I can't trust people, or that the world isn't safe, right? And so these can be uncovered and then worked with, brought to the surface, and eventually worked through. So that sense of the thick self is no longer happening in the same way. There's also, can be a way in which the, our social conditioning is way beneath the surface. And structures a sense of a thick self. You know, all sorts of ways that happens. We may have the, a thick sense of self that's hardly conscious about being a consumer or being, you know, kind of structured individualistically as in this culture or having a certain relationship to non-human animals or to the environment, you know, all sorts of forms of conditioning. Some of the most obvious ones are forms of conditioning where there is some kind of hierarchy in the, in the society or culture, you know, and we know these especially around gender or race or class, sexual orientation, maybe even body type, level of education. And often there's a hierarchy where there's a um, sort of a, one, one part of a, of a pair is on top and one is less than. And people who are on the lower part of that uh, duality 
may internalize a sense of self as less than and have to work with that, you know? And it can be very, it can be very intense. There is a, there was a story, actually there was a series of tests done in the uh, 1940s and 50s by uh, Mamie and Kenneth Clark. Some of you maybe know of these. They were called the, the doll test. And they're done with African-American uh, girls aged six to nine. And the, the, these studies actually became pivotal for the 1954 Supreme Court decision outlawing uh, school segregation. And the tests were, were ones in which these young girls were shown uh, a black doll and a white doll. And they were asked, which doll is good, which doll is bad, initially. And they, the, these uh, young girls said, the, uh, this was in the 40s and 50s, although there have been some recent studies which show it's not so different often. And then they, they said, the um, white doll is good and the black doll is bad. Then later they were asked, which doll is like you? And some of them could answer it, and some of them couldn't even answer that question. Right. So this is kind of heartbreaking, right? But it, it shows, and, and this is subterranean. Right? This is there in people's consciousness, you know. Um, I've had African-American friends who've been in groups for um, several years on what's sometimes called internalized oppression. And sometimes that's more obvious, and we may know that with some of the other dualities I mentioned, with, uh, and having to work through a certain amount. You know, less obvious is that the people who are on the upper end, so to speak, also have an, a thick sense of self internalized, I'm better than. This is sometimes called privilege. And it's generally not seen, right? And... Um, along all these hierarchies, we have something, and so there's a thick sense of self there, and yet it's and it's guiding the show, but we don't really often know that it's there. You know, I've been in. Um, uh, I'm currently involved in two groups of people who are racialized as white people, looking at whiteness and race, and it's pretty amazing, you know, to see people, and everyone's connected with Dharma and to see people's constructions and see the amount of confusion and shame and guilt and anger. It's a lot, you know. And so we often don't, that's often not seen. And yet it's really there, we could say, as part of the thick self. Sometimes needing, not necessarily uncovered in meditation. Sometimes we need other means to look to. And so there's a lot there, you know. There's a lot there that is... um, beneath the surface, creating that sense of self, you know. So for me, I sometimes hold this sense of the kind of the mature dharma as it emerges in this culture will have at least these three different dimensions of, in this case, working with the self at the personal, the psychological level, at the social level, and then in terms of traditional dharma practice as well. And these will get, I think, in time integrated. So some further ways of thinning the self in, and particularly here in meditation. And I'll just mention a number of further ways that we can practice with. And ultimately, I think all of these go together. And some of us may be working on some, but not not on others. And it's a lot, right? This is a lot to, um, you know, it's like that Yeats quotation where he says, actually, to look into oneself takes more courage than that needed by a soldier on the battlefield to really look deeply. So in meditation, we can, as we've seen, we can look in, we can use the model of the aggregates to work increasingly with that sense of flow, see where the thick self is. We can sometimes experience the thick self and let go. Notice it starting to want to control experience and I just let go, you know, some ideas, some thoughts, and I can let go. David White, everything I've ever let go of has claw marks on it. (laughs) It's not easy. You know, we can work with the 
The heart practices, the metta, the compassion, forgiveness are amazing practices for uh, working with the thick self. You know, and a lot of it's very obvious. We work to really develop that sense of kindness increasingly for all beings, like Sylvia was talking about that sense of inclusivity. The metta is there for all beings and along the way we see where that thick self is. Again, you know, amazing sometimes to see you know, the metta is just ch- chugging along, flowing along, and we come to the difficult person. You know? Ah, you know, it's like, like my experience of doing uh, 1.5 weeks of metta and just beautiful, inspiring, deep flow, concentration. Three and a half weeks, then I start do, do working with the uh, difficult person and it's like, comes to, a, comes to a halt, right? And then, uh, and said, it's like something in me is saying, not this person. <laughs> or there's some sense of polarization. And the heart practices are amazing when there's any sense of polarization. You know, we work and work with metta, we work with forgiveness, work with compassion. You know, in, um, in interpersonal connections, we can work with empathy. It can be a very, actually like a formal practice that we work with, where we consciously connect uh, empathically with the other. One practice I work with is where we tune in to what the other person is feeling as best we can, and what seems to matter for the person. And one can do this as a practice, regularly, to have that sense of empathy develop. And it's very hard to have both empathy and polarization at the same time. And so it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful practice. And in that sense of metta really complements that sort of the more wisdom teaching of not-self Nisargadatta, <clears throat> when I look inside and see that I am nothing, that's wisdom. Or see that there's not self, that's wisdom. When I look outside and see that I am everything, that's love. Between these, my life turns. And so we come then to the last area I want to explore, which is the thinning of the meditative self. You ready? <laughs> We've been doing the thinning. For whatever reason, I was just thinking I used to, uh, I remember I used to use paint thinner a lot. It was just coming to mind. (laughs) Be in the basement and work with thinning agents. Okay, okay. Just came came to mind. I didn't censor it, so it just came through. Not really relevant. <laughs> Is that discernment or judgment? <laughs> okay. Um, so part of the practice that's really interesting is asking, where is there a, medi- where is there a meditative self? You know, and again, we can see it in the more obvious ways that we may have self-image around being a meditator or getting, you know, we, sometimes at the end of the retreat, ask, you know, okay, Near the end of the retreat, what's my report card? How am I doing? Have I achieved things? Wasn't I expecting a really, really big experience? Did it happen? So we're, we've been partly disabused of that notion by Heather's talk last night about looking for the... the uh, more subtle and actually really significant but smaller insights. So we may have those thoughts. We may have that meditative self in that way. And it's also really interesting. There is, there is a, another kind of meditative self which is really, in a sense, what we set up when we meditate. That we set up uh, a kind of a witness or a knower in mindfulness practice. That is uh, tracking things. That is noticing what's going on. It's a helpful sense of self, but it's still, there's still a sense of self there. So we track, we notice, we label, or in meta practice, we say phrases, <clears throat> you know, and we make sure we're keeping on with the phrases, 
we look out for partial distortions, we apply the teachings, we listen to the talks, we apply them. Is, is that meditative? We can call it a meditative doer. Do you know that one? Okay. And there's nothing wrong with it. And we need a meditative doer to um, track the thick self. Even though you can see there could, there could be some strange feedback loops. But we need that meditative doer to track the thick self. And of course, we want to watch out that we get, that the thick self starts to merge with the meditative doer. Then, and we know that happens, right? It happens. But there are also ways that as we practice more, we start thinning the meditative doer. And I want to give you a sequence that I think can make sense of this development by which we thin the meditative doer and actually point towards this sense of um, mahasati or pure awareness that we've been often invoking during the retreat. Because there's a way that to get to that sense of um, pure awareness, we need to keep thinning the meditative doer or the meditative self. And I've been quite interested in how do we develop a methodology to move towards that pure awareness. There's not too much given in the Thai forest tradition. You know, there's some guidance, you know, look in this way, follow this guidance. And I've been interested in developing a little bit more of a methodology. How do we actually practice? What can we see it uh, as a sequence in a way? And I want to talk briefly about that really to finish, finish with the talk. So we start, by typically some degree of concentration. We need some degree of concentration that starts thinning out that self which is in discursive mode, which is distracted. We, with concentration, there's a thinning of the preoccupations of the thick self. Also, we notice the thick self, it's, in a sense, starts lessening. There's a thinning there. When we move to insight practice, we often engage in what we call choiceless awareness. It's another kind of thinning. We're removing the sense of the will really playing a role, at least in choosing the object, right? And so we open up just to the flow of experience and there's some further letting go of the meditative doer. And we still keep tracking when the self gets thick. There's still the tracker. There's still the one who who tracks we may get a sense of the flow of phenomena as we go more deeply. We may work with the three characteristics. We may be with that flow of impermanent events. We may be particularly conscious of the moments of suffering that become less and less. And there's moments of suffering or fixation or reactivity or the sense of self-arising as we go further with that. One way of practicing that can particularly take a further step is when we actually uh, do this practice with eyes open. The eyes are so connected with conceptualization. And we practice sometimes with eyes open and notice the tendency to fixate or to have a sense of concept or self. And as we do that, there's a further lessening of conceptualization. And we can be increasingly with the phenomena, eyes open, eyes closed, but we're still tracking. And if the concentration level is sufficient, at a certain point, we then finally, this is the final step in a way, we let go of the tracker. Has to be a pretty good level of concentration. We let go of the tracker and something potentially opens up to to awareness as such. There's no longer that subject-object split. There's no longer, in a sense, the meditative doer, even though it might come back in 10 seconds, saying, isn't this cool? (laughs) (laughs) Or something like that, or making a comment or say, I have to remember what I did, or something like that. But we can open up to that, that sense of this large awareness. Initially for a, a short time, and then maybe for a longer time, 
as we open up to that sense of pure awareness or what John has been talking about as atamayata, which is literally not concocting or not fashioning. You could say not doing. There's a not non-doing quality of that. This is what uh, Achan Man called the radiant mind. This is really the key aim of our practice is to open. There's that freedom that we can touch and it can give tremendous confidence then if we then go back and work with the remaining aspects of the thick self. Because we can experience this beautiful radiant mind and still have plenty of thick self material that's not dealt with. So we can get confused and think, oh, I'm there. You know, but then we go home and have an argument with our roommate and we know there might be a little more work to do. <laughs> yeah. But we can touch that kind of awareness. It can be really understood as that sequential movement towards thinning out the meditative doer. This is from uh, Achan Mahabua again. When the mind becomes a pure mind, that center disappears. Sort of the center, the self disappears. And so we can't say the mind is above or below or in any particular spot because it's an awareness that is pure, an awareness that is subtle and profound above and beyond any and all conventions. Even so, we are still veering off into conventions when we say that it's refined, which doesn't really fit the truth because, of course, refinement is a convention. We can't say that the awareness is high or low or that it has a point or center. All there is is awareness with nothing else infiltrating it. We would say no sense of self, not the, the doing anymore. Even though it's in the midst of the elements and the khandas and all the phenomena which it used to be mixed with, it's not that way anymore. This is, in a sense, one direction that the practice of thinning the self uh, leads to, or one direction that the thinning of the self goes. You know? And it's really, um, there really are really all these parts to the practice of thinning the self. There, and there are really many, many levels. And we find, we can find often that sense of flow quite easily for periods of time. And we, we can know that from our experience and we can find ways to live with that in daily life. It just requires sort of a little bit getting out of the way and letting the phenomena be there. And we can keep on studying the thick self. This is in a sense uh, right at the heart of our practice. Keep on noticing and letting go. Noticing, noticing, noticing. And again, there are a lot of complexities to it when we have to go you know, find ways to go beneath the surface. We can use all these meditative tools, the heart practices, metta, forgiveness, the mindfulness, the wisdom teachings. We have a lot of tools, pretty amazing. And we can add to it some of the more contemporary tools connected with psychological knowledge, trauma, and so forth. It's quite a set of tools. Let me finish just with... uh, Two short readings. This is from the Buddha. Well then, Sariputta, this is how the training should be done. Concerning this body with its consciousness, let there be no self-centered imaginings of I and mine, and no such bias. With regard to external objects, that there be no self-centered imaginings of mine and no such bias. We shall then abide in the attainment of the heart's liberation and the liberation by wisdom. And then from the ninth century, from the Indian sage Talopa. In the early practice, the mind is like a stream rushing through a gorge. In the middle, the mind is like the river Ganges flowing along gently. At the end, the mind is like the rivers joining the ocean, like the reunion of daughters with their mother.
So thank you for your kind attention. And um, may the practice continue well. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.